He arose. And certainly as we think about that Sunday morning, the first day of the week, in fact, that day on which He arose, it reminds us no doubt of the privilege it's ours to gather every first day of the week and to express our heartfelt appreciation and certainly our understanding of what He has done for us. And speaking of that, that's in fact a part of the title of the lesson today, The Blessing of Christ. And you'll notice I have thus given a subtitle, That We. And I believe you'll see why I chose that subtitle as we proceed through the lesson in just a few moments this morning. The introductory part of this lesson is developed based on the following very brief comments. Certainly it's an amazing thing to consider what it is that Christ Jesus has made available to every member of the human family. Blessings so rich, opportunities so majestic, the appreciation is truly fantastic. Listen to these verses. I am the way. The way to what? I am the life. What kind of life? I am the truth. As Jesus made that statement in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And with that, you and I recognize that the way, the life, the truth, He embodies all of it. If you and I thus expect to have life, if we expect to have truth, if we expect to appreciate any suitable way, it'll have to be by way of Him. So good that we've all been able to come together today. and Let's develop some of those points as we proceed through the lesson that now is to follow. I've asked you to appreciate very quickly this. I entitled the lesson, The Blessings from Christ. I hope for the next few moments you and I can then take at least a moment and think about the blessings we enjoy by virtue of Jesus. And I hope that I've been able to present it in such a way that you'll appreciate the opposites that are in it. I'm going to list a number of opposites, and I'm going to list things that Jesus has made available, and I hope the opposites will help us appreciate and remember some of the beautiful blessings that we have from Him. It all begins by observing the following. Jesus came. Now, there's no startling revelation in that, of course. He came into this world. Why don't we notice a few verses that will at least cement in our thinking the reality of the fact that He did. You and I walk upon this planet and we do so understanding daily the challenges as well as the possible trials and temptations that come. But there was a time when on the old dusty Palestinian soil, Jesus walked here. He came. He didn't just serve as our Lord by sitting on a throne in heaven and telling us merely what things ought to be and what things ought not be. He walked here just like you and me. Look at some of these verses. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul could write. But along the way, didn't Paul cement the truth? He did come here. There was a time when he had at his possession all the perhaps remarkable glories of heaven. He could say in John 17, verses 3 and 4, as he prayed at that time to the Father, Father, he spoke about the glory that he had with the Father before the world ever was. Can you imagine thus willingly and voluntarily leaving behind that depth of glory to come to a place like earth? The Master did it. 
He came. Not only is it that text of that we had just noted before in 1 Timothy 1, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus Himself would say, The Son of Man has come not to be ministered unto, but to give His life a ransom for many. But now let me finish it with the opposite thought. Jesus came that you and I, that mankind, may enter into heaven. He came to earth that we may go to heaven. There's a lot of richness in that, isn't there? Profoundness to be sure. The reason I say it that way, look at some of the remaining verses I have asked you to consider. In John 14, 1, on the hours right before He Himself would be crucified, He Himself said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Did you notice? He's the one coming back to take His children, His, back to Himself. If we aren't one of that number, then we won't be going where He's going. But isn't it an amazing thing? He came to earth that you and I might go to heaven. Oh, what richness in that thought. You may notice one last verse, and that would be that rather poetic presentation of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, wherein there we notice, For if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. As Paul thus could write to that church at Corinth, encouraging them to ever recognize that while we are at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. And so even Paul could look forward to the sweetness of that moment when in fact the matters of this terrestrial being would give way to the celestial glory beyond. Again, Jesus came to earth that you and I might go to heaven. Look at the second one. What else might be an opposite reminding us of the blessings surrounding the Master? I've entitled it this way, Jesus, of course, was born in the flesh. He was born as that babe in Bethlehem. But in so doing, look at some of the verses that at least remind us about the marvel of that moment. In John 1 verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word was of, you see, the characteristic that involved flesh and blood, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And in the connection, you and I notice thus, the Master Himself endured all the pains and the discomforts that go with this physical body, whatever they may have been. He knew them well. That included He was brought to tears on more than one occasion. You and I know well the anguish that went with His kind of death. But at the very least, isn't it true? All that's involved in the flesh, He endured it. But do you know what's the second? What's the blessing for us in it? He was born in flesh that you and I might be born in the Spirit. You see, they're opposites in one regard, but yet so connected in the reality of what Jesus made possible. Look at some of these verses connecting us to the Spirit. Aren't we reminded, for example, in John 3, verses 3 and following, 
in Jesus' unforgettable conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born of water and spirit, he would say in John 3 verse 5. Now Nicodemus was somewhat confused at first. What is this business of rebirth? And then the Lord explained, this rebirth involves water and it involves spirit. You and I thus must be born in the Spirit if we are to ever understand the kind of connection to God and the life that He would have in store for us. Look at that other verse I've asked you to consider. In 1 Peter 1.23, Peter, what are you saying that you and I are born of? We are born of that uncorruptible seed, connected, of course, through the development of the Spirit. Today, aren't you and I thankful then that in V, Jesus was born in flesh, that you and I might be born of the Spirit. What about number three? What other blessing might well be seen in opposites connected in ways like this? Jesus was born of a woman. Now that doesn't seem all that strange, does it? Every one of us could say that. Look at some of the verses, though, that make a rather large biblical deal out of it. You and I know that, of course, Jesus was Emmanuel, he is God in the flesh. Thus it becomes significant to say that He was born of a woman. The verses I've asked you to consider are these. In Galatians 4 verse 4, in the heart of that Galatian letter, we read about Jesus, we read about this great one, born of a woman, born under the law, and that born of a woman takes us back in many ways to the reality of the first biblical promise concerning that event. In Genesis 3.15, when the God of heaven said, of course, to the devil, in regard to the fact that though you will be able to bruise his heel, he, that's the seed of the woman, born of a woman, he'll bruise your head. And in that connection, you and I notice it's a fantastic truth, but what's in it for you and me? Jesus, born of a woman, that you and I might be made sons of God. Isn't it a truly amazing thing to be able to say of some individual, he or she is a child of God, that he or she is in the family of God? And yet, isn't it so that Christ Jesus came to make that possible? On the slide, I've asked you to note some of these verses with me. In 1 John 3, I'm sorry, John 1, verses 11 and 12, that as you and I, you see, are those who are in the position, we're able to say so easily in that state. Jesus came into the world, and though He was rejected, He gave to those who would believe in Him the power that they might be the children of God. He gave them power to, in fact, be born of God. To be born of God is something that is not only amazing in the book of John, but it reappears a number of times in the writings of John, otherwise in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So it is that that verse in 1st John 5 verse 4 points out that it is that which allows us the victory that overcomes the world. That fourth point, Jesus became the Son of Man. As He left heaven, as He thus tabernacled in the flesh upon earth, he thus was called the Son of Man. He called Himself that. But in so doing, several verses, of course, quickly come to mind. Not the least of which, 
that set of verses in Philippians chapter 2. But maybe it's the scene with Zacchaeus in Luke 19 that takes center stage. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus made that statement. Who was He talking about? Himself is the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. As the Master came for that purpose... The blessing, of course, that's in it for you and I is that the lost can be found. It's that those who occupy that place of being lost can be a part of that family of God. In so doing, that verse that appears in Galatians 4 verse 6 reads it like this. You and I can cry, Abba, Father. We can turn to Him as our Father and just as loving and enduring, endearing way that we can with our earthly fathers, we can lay upon Him the petitions and cares which would otherwise be ours. One by one, as we have at least seen some of the blessings that we enjoy from Christ, we've noticed that ours is a circumstance so often different than His. What about number five? Jesus knew well the thing you and I would call poverty. He lived it. He understood it so carefully. We understand that from several passages, and we'll notice a couple of them. Didn't Jesus Himself say in Luke chapter 9, verses 58 and following, you may recall that there was a person who was greatly excited to follow Jesus. In fact, he was so encouraged to do so in his own mind that he was ready to leave aside a number of other obstacles. Jesus said, I want you to understand something before you do this. The Son of Man has not where to lay His head. Don't think you can come to me just to be wealthy. Don't think you can be a follower of mine just to acquire the matters that otherwise this world would offer. For I don't have them, and you shouldn't think you will either. Jesus knew poverty. Look at the wording of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This, in many ways, is one of the grandest verses of the New Testament. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be made rich. The Lord, you see, had all the richness that one might imagine in heaven, and yet He gave that up to become poor. He knew poverty. But now let's finish our thought. Not only did Jesus know poverty, He did so that you and I might be made rich. That's what the verse said. If you and I really want to be rich, it's only found through Jesus. It's not found at the local bank. It isn't found through the characteristic of possessions on the farm. Those things are needful for a while. And we certainly would wish to be good stewards of them. But eternal riches are only found in Jesus. And He knew poverty that you and I might be rich. One last verse upon that slide. Ask you to reflect upon the very phrase, the riches of His glory in Ephesians 2 verse 7. How rich are you and I today? If we are faithful Christians, oh, we have riches untold. But if we're not, there's no earthly poverty that comes close to our poverty. Look at number six. So far we've looked at several things that we enjoy by virtue of the blessing of Christ. But what about this one? Jesus was rejected. We know it well. 
In fact, in the opening chapter of the gospel according to John, it was highlighted, was it not? That he came into his own, but his own received him not. Now that was true, you see, not only of Jesus, but also of John the Baptist. Jesus was rejected. Isaiah 53 had pointed it out as dramatically as this. Note Isaiah 53, verse number 3. He was respected, he was rejected of men and despised. Later in the verse, that same statement was made again. He is rejected and we esteemed him not. The human family, rather than honoring the Son of God, rather than appreciating that for which he stood and understanding the blessing that he made available, they put him to death. They tortured him. They despised him. And all the while he came to be their benefit. Aren't you reminded to some extent of that parable the master told about how that the, the landowner sent servants to acquire of those that were taking care of the vineyard so that, they could, so that he could receive of the rightful fruits of the vineyard? But you see, they shamefully treated the servants. They cast them out and in fact even kill some of them. And finally, the owner said, I'll send my son with the thought that they'll respect him, with the thought they'll honor him because he's the son. And so when the son came, you and I recall what those sinful men did to him. They shamefully treated him, they killed him, and they demanded that they be allowed to keep the vineyard. And then Jesus asked this question, What do you think the owner will do to those guys after having treated his son that way. Now that parable Jesus taught, doesn't that remind us today? The son was rejected, and men did it to him. But let's finish it up. What's the blessing in it for us? Jesus was rejected that you and I might be accepted by God. And therein lies the beautiful key. To stand as the one accepted by God. Remember, Jesus said, If you want to go to heaven, I'm the only way you can get there. John 14, 6. Jesus Himself would say, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The only salvation to be had is thus due to the Master Himself. Accepted by God. Don't you find it interesting to notice in Ephesians 1 verse 4, the statement therein made that even before the foundation of this world was ever laid, God had a plan. And that plan would involve the death of His Son, of course in its rejection, so that men and women could thus be right with God. You and I today are the beneficiaries of that to be sure. Let's look at the next one. Not only in that rejection, we somewhat begin to reach a pinnacle as we come to these. Number seven, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 had said that. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53 verses 3 and 4. That is to say, the Lord didn't simply live in the lap of luxury while here upon earth without cares and without concerns. He knew well the plight that went with rejection and sorrow. Look at some of these statements. 
I've asked you to notice in Matthew 23, verse 37, our Savior was brought to tears as He lamented and wept over the pitiful choices that people made. That happened to be ancient Jerusalem. Jesus, knowing full well that the opportunity for life was available and they had no interest in it, it caused Jesus to cry. Later on, you and I would notice in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, that His tears were even there stated like this, strong tears. Jesus must have cried a lot, at least in some regards, given the way that people were choosing death and choosing spiritual ruin. But is it any different today? You may notice we need to turn it around. Jesus knew sorrow, what's in it for us? That you and I might be glad and rejoice. You and I can know pleasantness. We can know absolute connection to goodness because He knew sorrow. Let's look at some verses that point that truth out to us. I've selected but two. What about 1 Peter 4 verse 13? In that fourth chapter of 1 Peter, Peter pointed out rather notably the fact that one of the blessings that not only the Gentile nation enjoys, but yea, all who would come to the Master is that grand blessing of a life connected with gladness and connected with association to what is genuine and pure rejoicing. No wonder Paul could write to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Philippians 4 verse 4. As you contemplate that element in rejoicing with me, what about number 8? Jesus knew about sin. Now, I didn't say He committed sin, but He knew the characteristic of it in that He was made. Have you ever thought about what that must have been like? He had never sinned, you see, before. And suddenly, to be made sin for us, who knew no sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us. He was made to suffer under the duress of sin, though he'd never committed any. Doesn't that seem unfair to you? Who among us would have done it? How often do we stand up for our right and say, that's not fair? And yet all the while the Lord had never sinned, and thus he never had to suffer any punishment for it. And yet he voluntarily took upon himself the nature of my sin and yours. He knew sin was made sin in that regard. The blessing for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Now that's what he had known all along. He'd never known anything else. Didn't he say in John 8, 29, I always do those things that please the Father. You and I can't say that. We more than once fall under that banner of Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God but not Him. And yet, He chose to be made like unto sin that you and I might be made righteous. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? Isn't that compelling? Surely in that regard, these final verses on that point will somewhat close our discussion of that. For He made Him to be made sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Every element in righteousness that you and I enjoy 
is due to the fact that he was willing on that cross to suffer the pangs of what our sins would have demanded. So far, we've looked at eight, eight ideas, and they've all been involved in opposites, something that Jesus himself endured that you and I might enjoy the far better positive. Number nine, Jesus suffered death. We've mentioned this more than once so far in light of the cross. The events that surrounded it and the Lord Himself knew it was coming. He had even said in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34, many, many weeks prior to the actual events, He pointed out that what was going to happen to Him. Can you imagine the challenges and difficulties that would come knowing that kind of treatment was going to be yours? And with each passing day, the Lord knew it was inching closer and closer. Finally, as you and I recognize the moments of that death, Jesus was put to death. Many Bible verses comment that He Himself said as He gave up the ghost. But yet He suffered that death that you and I might live. Now clearly, that's not involving physical life. There's a lot of people who never have known the Lord at all, and yet they're alive physically. But the far greater life is spiritual life. Life in connection to God. Life that will exist far beyond the grave. And only those in Jesus know that. Only those in the Master have that understanding. Is that yours and mine? Oh, how much that should mean to us. On the particular slide, I've asked you to note that verse. That verse particularly in Ephesians 2 verse 1. All of us that were dead in trespasses and sins are the very ones who three verses later are made alive because of what God did through Christ. Dead in trespasses and sins but made alive through Christ. Aren't you thankful to be alive spiritually? Connected to the one, of course, who will take us beyond the grave. But that kind of thought, again, note how opposite it is. He knew death that you and I might live. In fact, as we're about to celebrate in just a moment the Lord's Supper, that's a reminder of that death. And as we partake of that in a fashion that is described in the Word of God, we seek to do so worthily. We seek to do so with care and dignity solemnity and diligence. All of that because we understand that Jesus knew death that we and I might live. Number 10. Number 10. Jesus was cursed. Now you at first thought may wonder, what does that mean? I would invite you to note Galatians chapter 3, wherein it is said, Cursed is everyone that's hanged on a tree. And the context refers that to the Master. And so in the eyes of men, He was cursed, you see, above all others. He was crucified with thieves. And in so doing, you and I recall that they wagged their heads at Him as they walked before Him. And they insulted and reviled Him and even blasphemed Him. You've saved others, why don't you save us as well as yourself? But all the while, the Master, you see, knew that it was the plan and will of God that needed to be done. He was cursed indeed in the eyes of men. But in so doing, the blessing in it for us is this, that we may be blessed above. 
That blessed above takes us to the scene, of course, of heaven itself. The grandeur that awaits the faithful. And so it is that Jesus, you see, in all these ten ways, He endured and suffered various things that you and I might enjoy far greater things and quite often opposite things. The question that is easily asked then of each of us individually is, where do I stand in light of the Master today? This is the day that our world recognizes Easter Sunday. This particular day of somewhat significance in the eyes of the world connected to the resurrection of the Master you and I realize we have the blessed privilege of celebrating that every Lord's Day. But today we especially want to be particularly mindful of these ten ways in which, as opposites, what Jesus has made possible for us far greater. As we summarize some of the matters of this lesson, we'll simply do so like this. Brother Cale read earlier as a part of our lesson text, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. If you and I want abundant life, Jesus is the only way to have it. He's the only way here, the only way hereafter. And so today, we will extend the Lord's invitation at this time, if there be anyone in the audience separated from the Master at this moment, and you know that in all these ten ways, He wants something far better for you than what you now have, then why do you delay? Why will you wait? This is the time of response. It's the time of positive action and movement in the direction of what the promise that the Lord has made. And if we could help today, we'd love to do it as the Lord's invitation is extended. While together we stand and while we sing.